Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 159. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, and this week we bring you Vendemier by L.S. Johnson. L.S. was born in New York and now lives in Northern California, where she feeds her cats by writing book indexes. Her stories have appeared in such venues as Strange Horizons, Interzone, Long Hidden, Speculative Fiction from the Margins of History, and Year's Best Weird Fiction. Vacui Magia, Stories, is her first collection. She can be found online via the link in our show notes. The story is read by Josie Babin. Josie was lucky enough to grow up with wizards and fey mentors and hobbits and fauns for companions. Keeping her head in the clouds allowed her to constantly look up and out and ahead, leading to an overdeveloped curiosity that she freely indulges to this day. As a grown-up, she gets to play in the ever-curious sandbox of medical science on a quest to cure evil diseases. In her spare time, she can be found keeping company with the San Diego sun or tormenting her two cats with attempted belly rubs. Vendemier was the name for the first month of the French Revolutionary Calendar, which started on the first day of the autumnal equinox and was known for being the month of the grape harvest. The relevance of that little bit of trivia will soon become clear. And now, Vendemier by L.S. Johnson. There was a time when Ariane could not see over the rows of her father's grapevines. At the height of the summer, the vineyard became a vast maze, and she would follow her mother, watching her taste the grapes, her skirts swaying as she walked, a fine haze of dirt collecting on their hems. The world then was black soil and green life, and her mother striding ahead, 
head held high, lips and fingers stained crimson from the juices. All of that was years ago. Yet there are days when Ariane goes far into the rose, searching for any place where the leaves are green and dense still. Where the fruit grows plump, not mildewed and shriveled. When at last she finds a patch, she goes down on her knees in the dirt until she can see nothing but blushing fruit and green leaves and the blue sky above. On her knees in the dirt, Ariane can envision her mother before her, see her spattered hems and the rough clogs over her fine stockings. On her knees in the dirt, Ariane's mind becomes formless and clear. On her knees, the world is a whole thing once more, a single path as welcoming as an embrace. Until she stands up, and the world breaks into pieces once again, the rows of brown grapevines splintering in all directions, the wind rattling the shutters on the crumbling cottage where she and her father live. The slope of the rise before the hollow, where the old house still stands, the embodiment of her mother's betrayal, their tainted land. Her father goes to the village only when necessary, his battered hat low over his face, Ariane at his side. She does what she can to make them presentable, wearing her spare dress and fussing over his dingy cravats. She cannot bear to give the villagers any more reason to despise them. Everyone is polite still, for was he not once a king among them? His vines had been the most productive in the region, never touched by blight or frost. They called him seigneur. They appealed to him for advice, for his clout in dealings. All while her mother drew their wives around her, like so many birds, performing her own transactions in the shadows, her pockets always full of small sachets filled with powders. This for love, this for an unwanted child, this to keep your husband close. They are polite still, and the shopkeepers deal with her father fairly, and sometimes they add a little more to their few purchases. And Ariane can never decide if they do so out of respect for what her family had been, or fear of her mother now. As she waits for her father to finish, she idles by the door of the shop, watching the passers-by in the street. She pretends idleness, but in truth she cannot bear to see the empty shelves, the dust on the barrels, just as she keeps her gaze averted from the brown-spattered crops, her mother's handiwork. A young man walking past touches his hat, a cursory gesture, Emile. By his side, his mother crosses herself, and Ariane bites back her exclamation. As if she never came to Ariane's mother, never bought her share of remedies. 
What then of the two children after a meal? Gone before her belly even began to swell. Barely any pain. Emile. Ariane once fancied he might. But none of them will do more than acknowledge her now. All her plans, her hopes, all sundered. She steps back, hiding herself in the shadows. Only then does she see her father deep in agitated conversation with the shopkeeper. She moves closer, ears straining to catch their exchange. He arrived last night from Paris, the shopkeeper says. He says a committee rules us now. They beheaded the king himself. They're going to rid France of every traitor. They're even changing the damn calendar. They're going to try and do away with God himself next. You'll see. Anyway. He's scouting the villages close to the road. They want to install a recruitment office. Possibly a garrison. That and he wants the names of any who still harbor royalist leanings. Her father only shakes his head, as if trying to free himself from a restraint. We cannot support dozens of bloodthirsty louts when we can barely feed ourselves. The shopkeeper leans over the counter. So we are going to give him her name and send him to you. Either he'll rid us of her or she'll rid us of him. Again, her father shakes his head. You cannot, he says. If any harm come to her, who knows what it might unleash. We can guess. The shopkeeper snaps. What's a little more starvation? If he fails, at least we'll have time to plan for when his fellows arrive. You must do this, he adds, seizing her father's arm. If you had kept the unholy bitch satisfied, none of this would matter. With the harvest we had, we could have tolerated a hundred soldiers, or bought off this committee. Now you can pay for your failure. That's enough, Ariane says. She steps beside her father, prying off the shopkeeper's grasping hand. Do what you will, just leave him alone. Her father has started weeping, and she wants to both slap him and embrace him. Can't you see her betrayal has broken him? Is that what you call it? The shopkeeper sneers at her. It was far more than betrayal, citizen. Just as what we suffer under is far more than bad summer, or poor soil, or whatever fancies you tell each other. Your mother fucked the devil himself. He pauses, taking a breath. And now you have made me say it aloud. Like mother, like daughter. I curse the day you came here. Ariane takes a step back instinctively, the disgust in his voice, the crudeness of his language. She knew the villagers despised them. 
but the man seems to be teetering on the edge of violence. And what would he do without the threat of her mother? What would they all do? At once she knows it in her bones. They would kill her and her father. Citizen Committee has already inquired about your land, the shopkeeper continues. He fancies your proximity to the crossroads. We will recommend he call on you at the first possible moment. If that meets with the fair citizen's approval. She manages a nod and sweeps up their goods with one arm, steering her father with her free hand. He blubbers and sways, hindering their progress through the village. She has known this place all her life, yet now it seems a foreign land, every face filled with menace. When she thought she saw only scorn, now she sees outright hatred. At her side, her father clutches at his jacket, as if holding in his very soul. But Ariane can only think on what might happen should they fail to kill the man from Paris. Lost in thought, she doesn't see the children until they are long past the village gates. Their small forms weave in and out of the windbreaks of linden trees, holding their fingers up to their foreheads and sniggering. They mock lunge at each other, they wiggle their buttocks. And when their laughter makes Ariane turn completely, they duck behind the trees so only their sing-song whispers remain. Monsieur Beau, horny old devil, Monsieur Beau, the witch is calling you. She will fuck you till she's dead. She will fuck you down to hell till she's dead down in hell. <laughs> Later that day, Ariane walks to the top of the rise. The house sits in the hollow, square and implacable, its plasterwork webbed with cracks, its shingled roof a patchwork. The black area near the back of the house. Has the roof given way completely? What does her mother do for food, for heat? How does her mother live in such a place? She will fuck you till she's dead. She has tried to enter before. Always the shutters were tightly latched, the doors locked against her. She has wound round and round, calling, howling for her mother. She has flung rocks at the unyielding wood, brought hammers down on the plaster. But beneath its decaying surface the building might as well be stone. She has never had an emissary until now. Four years ago, Ariane had been awakened by her mother's footsteps, and she had followed just in time to see the front door open, revealing the moonlit world. She knew then something was terribly wrong for they were not to open the door at night. But her mother had simply stepped outside, clad only in her shift that ballooned in the warm night air. Ariane had run after her, crying, Mama! Mama! She ran and ran until her breath caught in her throat, until at last she had seized one of the trailing ribbons woven into her mother's cuffs, pulling it like a leash. Only then did her mother look back at Ariane, and her eyes were those of another woman, and her lips were glossy and parted in anticipation. She had looked at Ariane, in the ribbon, 
and she had seized the ribbon in both hands and snapped it in two. He's here at last, she had said impatiently, as if Ariane should know this. And then she had turned away and continued walking, ascending the rise to where a figure stood waiting, silhouetted against the stars. And she had disappeared into the darkness of his outstretched arms. Monsieur Paul, horny old devil. It still feels like it happened yesterday. Every detail sharp and painful. Only now, looking down on the porch where she had stood looking up, Ariane feels a strange doubling. She raises her arms, matching the figure's stance that night. The setting sun casts a hollow in shadow. A swift hot breeze rushes through her, and she can see her mother walking towards her. She can feel her mother's desire. She can feel her mother embracing her. Despite the shopkeeper's urgency, it is two long days before Ariane hears the horse rounding the bend in the road. She has put on her mother's old hat each day, and she pretends to examine the grapes, though there is little to examine. She does not turn as he approaches, though out of the corner of her eye she sees a bright blue suit coming through the rows a cocky tricolor rosette bobbing atop his black bicorn. Good day, he calls out. I'm told a great vintner resides here. Ariane turns then, curtsying low, arrogant and haughty, with boots and sword polished to gleaming. The gentleman still does, though as you see he no longer applies himself. No, apparently to his neighbors, he says, drawing close. His face is handsome, and for a moment she feels her resolve waver. You must be the daughter they spoke of, citizen... Ariane, she interrupts. More handsome for his embarrassment. We are not so formal here, monsieur. I mean, citizen... Durand, he says. Theodore Duran, soldier and citizen. He smiles at her, and an enthusiast of country manners now. He takes a step back, his gaze sweeping over the land, and Ariane as well. It's all fine property, he says. If your father has no interest in managing it, perhaps he'd like to help his country. Our general seeks to install a company of guardsmen in this region. It would suit our purpose. He cannot sell, Ariane says. Oh? The property is entailed? Because of my mamma. She lowers her eyes. Ah, yes, I heard in the village, he breaks off. What did they say? That she favors a foul, corrupt king whose demise I was privileged to witness. Citizen Durand says with surprising venom. Then he laughs. And that she practices terrible heresies, a much lesser crime to my way of thinking. He draws close, bending over until he catches her eye. You mustn't let their foolish gossip upset you, citizen. We have broken with the past. We're doing away with every kind of untruth. Religion included. 
soon the light of raison will shine on every corner of France. He laughs again when she remains downcast. In Paris, women take lovers all the time and reconcile with their husbands and take lovers again. It's no cause for shame unless the lover is an enemy of liberty. But she's mad now, as anyone would be with such neighbors. One told me she would do better to kill herself. I... He breaks off again, for Ariane has started weeping. She was right. They wish her family dead. And how much more will they endure before they act? Only then does she realize Citizen Duran has put an arm around her, filling her nostrils with a not unpleasant blend of man, horse, and rabbit stew. Would you speak to her? She whispers, drawing out her handkerchief and blotting her eyes. Who? Mama. She can no longer recall if this is still her plan or she's speaking honestly. She won't let me see her, and my father is full of both grief and fear of her. But perhaps you can convince her to come out, and we could sell everything and leave this damnable place. Her voice breaks over the last, but if her strength of emotion startles Citizen Doran, he makes no sign. Of course, he says. I will interview her, and judge her loyalties and her reason. There is a hospital in Nice for women like her, and we can bring her to Paris. They could use a man like your father there. He continues in the same reassuring tone. A man with intimate knowledge of the agriculture of this region? Many will pay for his advice, I assure you. If you had kept the unholy bitch satisfied... Ariane tries to imagine her father in Paris. What causes crops to fail, monsieur? Why, unsatisfied women, of course. She feels harsh laughter rising despite her tears and bites her lip. Now show me this house, Citizen Durand declares, and I will meet your mother with pleasure. At the door, Ariane lays her hand on Citizen Durand's arm. His forearm is wonderfully firm. It is real and alive, and she hesitates then. What if her father is right in his apprehensions? But she has never been so close before. Citizen Durand raises his eyebrows, but does not move her hand. I... I have something, she says. From her pocket she draws out the piece of broken ribbon. It will prove that I sent you. He smiles as he takes it. A token, he says, glancing at the house. He continues, And a house fit for a lord. I feel like I am the hero in my nursemaid's story. Only I'm missing one element. Ariane frowns at this. He has a sword, and proof of their association. What more? A kiss from a fair maiden, he purrs, and perhaps the possibility of more if I succeed. Before she can think of what to say, his lips are pressing against hers. At first she is taken aback, 
but her surprise swiftly becomes annoyance. How can he dawdle so now? On the threshold? Yet she dares not push him away. What if he refuses to go inside? Instead, she opens her mouth to his tongue while he wedges her against the wall, stroking her waist with his hand. She counts inwardly, fuming, until at last he steps back and she sighs with relief, only to flush when she sees his triumphant expression. A blushing, sighing country girl, practically swooning at his slightest caress. For a moment, she hates both him and herself. I will make this a swift interview, he says thickly. Biting back her retort, she says instead, Tell my mother I miss her. He places his hand on the doorknob. The world seems to still at the gesture, as still as when Ariane kneels among the vines, and a small pragmatic part of herself realizes if the door does not open, she will have a devil of a time fending him off. The door swings open, as if the hinges were freshly oiled. With a last jaunty smile, Citizen Durand bows to her and steps into the darkness. Ariane tries to follow him, but the door flies shut as if pushed from within. The sun sets as Ariane waits, sitting on the edge of the porch. For the whole of the afternoon there was not a sound within, not a voice, not even the creak of floorboards, not even a scream to signal his failure. And why would he fail? His mind is sound, and he carries a weapon. Perhaps he might even breathe reason into her mother once more, bring her blinking and contrite out into the fading sunlight. One way or another, it will be over at last. It all feels like some great weight is being taken from her, the last few years stripped away. The sun touches the horizon, the sky flaring red. She watches the birds making for the trees, watches the first few stars appear. She should go to the cottage and get some bread at least, and a shawl, and a lantern, but she's loath to abandon her post. Fidgeting with indecision, she tries to calculate how swiftly she can get to the cottage and back. The door opens. Citizen Duran steps onto the porch his whole body shuddering. He breathes deeply over and over, gulping down the air. He has lost his coat and waistcoat, and his white shirt has a rust-colored spray across the front. He clutches his sword in his hand, the blade dark and glistening, and for a moment Ariane can only stare in shock. All her vague ideas, all her bloated words, have come back to her as blood. Mama, she whispers. Oh, my poor Mama. At the sound of her voice, he stumbles backward on the porch, pointing the bloody sword at her. Stay away from me, he gasps. What happened? She gets to her feet, holding out her hands. I, I do not blame you, citizen. She was beyond all reason. But he only crosses himself as he backs off the porch 
and into the rows of vines the tip of his sword wobbles, though it remains pointed at her heart. Theodore, she says, her voice firmer, tell me what happened. He flinches at her words, then turns and runs, crashing headlong across the rows, ripping at the canes and flinging them aside. Theodore, she calls out, Theodore, come back, I'll do anything, just tell me what happened. But he is gone. Only then does she turn and see the door standing open. In the years since her mother walked out into the night, and her father took Ariane to live in the cottage, she has imagined the house many times. She imagined a decaying shell. She imagined the halls and rooms painted with the filth of her mother's madness. But what Ariane steps into is not a house. Rather, she steps into a corridor of rough wood, forcing her to go either left or right. The boards have been nailed to the walls, covering what was once a finely gilded entrance hall. She cannot think of why her mother would go to such lengths to build a corridor within the hall. The boards blocked both light and air. They made it impossible to go directly into the house. And then she understands. This is not her mother's work. She would have no knowledge of building such walls, much less the skill to accomplish it. Her father did this. Ariane eases off her clogs and places them carefully by the door. She feels a sudden need for caution. She goes to take the key from the lock, only to find there is no key. A close examination reveals the lock has been sealed on the inside, locking her mother in. How, then, did the door open for Theodore? Ariane can think of no answer save a growing sense of dread. Slowly, she steps to the left, following the corridor through what she remembers as a parlor. The next room was the library. From there, you turn to the right, towards the bedrooms at the back of the house, passing through the pretty little conservatory where her mother taught her to sew and draw. A rush of grief racks her body, and she finds herself weeping as she has not done since those first few months. The windows and doors are nailed shut. Through the boards, she can glimpse the empty shelves of the library, every book gone, as though they never existed. All these years of listening to her father pray, was it for himself, not her mother, for his rage which made him seal her in this tomb? She moves deeper into the house, tears running down her face. The rough wood and nail heads catch at her skirts. There are moist patches on the floor that seep into her stockings. Mama! Now that she is far from the front door, she can smell the house, smell the damp and the hints of rot. But beneath it all is a faint odor that she only knows as home. Mama! The conservatory is a forest of webs, thick clouds of them tumbling from the ceiling to floor, where they end in drifts of gray dust. Dust casts a haze over the game tables, the settee. It gathers on the harpsichord, whose lid has staved in from rot, its keys covered in a sludgy pulp of sheet music. Yet Ariane's vision keeps doubling, 
showing her what used to be, as though it all lies behind a scrim of decay, and she need only draw it aside to return everything to as it was. Past the conservatory, and the hall is black now. She moves forward by touch, trailing her fingers lightly against the wood until they graze a strange bump, and another. She pauses in the darkness, feeling the protrusions, trying to make sense of them. They feel like young grapevines. Another few steps and her path narrows, hemmed in by both the wooden boards and the thicket of vines growing over them. How can they be growing without light? Yet they cling to the boards, as if in the strongest sun. They bend beneath her hand without snapping. They even smell the part, green and fresh, in the midst of the heavy, mildewed air. She must push now to get past the grapevines, shoving and twisting. No leaves, but she can feel the fine buds, can almost sense them waiting for the first ray of sunlight. The walls thicken around her until she finds herself turning to the side, stretching arm and leg through, and then dragging the rest of herself after, breath rasping in her ears and her heart hammering. If something comes upon her now, she will die trapped in this cage. And then she hears someone whimper. The sound fills her. She pushes blindly through the vines until at last she sees parallel gleams of light, and she throws all her weight against the door, knocking it open. It is her mother's bedroom. Ariane halts on the threshold, her mouth hanging open. Her bedroom, but untouched by decay, by dirt, by time itself. Every drape and covering pristine, the walls glowing in the candlelight from the sconces, the paintings bright and unsullied. There is a body on the floor. Slowly, Ariane walks towards it. Every detail seems to etch itself upon her eyes. The bowl of water on the side table, the fortune-teller's cards that have tumbled across the floor. And, oh, she had forgotten the water and the cards— how her mother would peer at them and simply know things, while little Ariane would stare and stare, desperately hoping to see something, anything, and win her mother's approbation at last. When she reached the body, she lets out a long, deep breath, for it is her mother, though older than Ariane remembers. And why did she never imagine this? She herself has aged from girl to woman, why did she think time would halt for her mother? She wants to weep, but no tears will come. There is a deep red line across her mother's throat, and the floor beneath her glistens, the red line, the wet floor, Theodore's wet sword. And when did the air become so cold? For Ariane is shivering, she feels chilled to the bone, yet she can only look and look. The red line of congealing blood, how it matches the crimson damask of the dress, the unfamiliar wrinkles, the streaks of gray in the brown hair, all seemingly painted over her mother's familiar face. At last Ariane wrenches her gaze away and goes to the bed, thinking to use the coverlet as a shroud. Now she sees what was hidden by the door, 
a pile of small, clean bones, the skulls marked by the thick, curving teeth of rats. Beside them, incongruously, sits a pyramid of wax tapers. Behind the piles bursting through the wallpaper, as if springing from the very beams of the house, are more young vines, their tiny leaves a bright, vivid green among the pinhead sprays of new fruit. Between the vines is a smeary drawing of what appears to be a man's silhouette, the edges disappearing and reappearing between the green tendrils, the whole almost familiar. Her mother's lover. He's here at last. Ariane takes a step without realizing, and another. The image seems to beckon to her. Her lips part, her body shudders, and she finds herself reaching for a hand that isn't there. And yet, perhaps, in the shadows, her fingertips touch the smudged wall, and it is as soft and warm as Theodore's kiss. And she feels certain that she can go into the wall, and what lies beyond is wondrous. A cry breaks the silence, a high-pitched wail rising to a shriek. Ariane's heart leaps. She looks to her right, her fingers resting on the softness, and gapes at the small figure that darts from behind the door. The room dims, and she is no longer inside, but outside. She is on the hill. She looks down at little Ariane running towards her, and the body is hers, and the hand clutching the broken piece of ribbon is hers, and the face is nightmare. Down in hell, someone says, and she realizes the voice is her own, and the world vanishes. When Ariane awakens, a candelabra is burning before her. So close she is momentarily blinded, and she pushes it aside before sitting up and staring at the child staring back at her. Though perhaps child is not the right word for the creature. Clad in a too small shift and rocking back and forth on his bare, dirty feet, his breath coming in audible snorts from the calf's head that sits atop his thick neck. There will come a point, Ariane thinks, a point when she will truly understand that this is real. Her murdered mother, and the monstrosity watching her with large black eyes, and in that moment she will probably go quite mad. The creature opens his broad mouth, and she recoils, but he only utters two small noises, with such seeming earnestness that she cannot help but lean forward, listening, mouthing the sounds until at last she understands. Mama, she says. The creature flings himself at Ariane, moaning and whimpering, wrapping chubby arms around her neck and pressing his brown, downy face against her cheek. She nearly screams, but manages to smother her cry behind clenched teeth. Instead, she takes a deep breath, willing herself calm. Only then does she feel the creature's violent trembling. Slowly she rubs his back with one hand, cradling his head with her other. But as soon as she touches behind his ear, he yelps. Hushing him, she twists until she sees the dirty, scabbing wheel running across the back of his head, 
as if struck by a sword, perhaps, while fleeing from a monster? A monster that Ariane visited upon the child and her mother both. Still rubbing his back, she takes out her handkerchief and wets it with her tongue, then dabs at the wound. As she works, his shudderings lessen, then quiet altogether, and she finds herself humming and rocking him like any little boy. When she draws back, the boy makes a high-pitched noise and pushes his wet nose against her lips. And for the first time in years, she finds herself truly smiling. She drapes the coverlet over her mother's body, the boy making lowing noises as her face disappears. He clings tightly to Ariane's skirts, nearly wrapping around her leg. Whatever he is, whatever will happen, she cannot leave him here. What would become of him in this dreadful place, all his sweetness eroding until only the monster remains, waiting for another Theodore to finish him? She has enough on her conscience. They move around the bedroom in an ungainly crab-walk as she gathers up the cards, the discarded piece of ribbon. She needs to find better clothes for him, and a large hood. With the calf's head hidden from view, he'll look like any other boy, three or four years old. She pauses, looking down at the dark eyes gazing up at her. Three or four years old. If he is her mother's child, then he might well be four now. Nine months after her father had removed them to the cottage and sealed the house for good. Did her father imprison her knowing she was with child? The thought fills Ariane with a fresh, bright pain. She cannot bear to think on it. She cannot bear any of it. The very air tastes of deceit and sorrow, and she longs to leave. The boy nudges her, and she rubs the soft hair between his ears. The feel of it quiets her, filling her with the same sense of calm as when she kneels among the grapevines. She looks once more around the room. Beside her, the boy sniffs, his large nostrils flaring and whines uneasily. A moment later, she too smells it, just a hint in the stale air of the bedroom. Smoke. Ariane goes to the window, peering through the shutters. She can just make out the rows of grapevines, some already scorched, some bright with flames. People run past the window. She sees familiar faces contorted with rage. She sees torches and farm tools, and she lurches backwards in fright. The villagers have come at last. She slings the boy into her arms and hurries out of the room shoving and kicking her way through the vines. As she draws close to the open door, she sees orange-tinged smoke drifting in. She hears a roar of anger and an answering yell, and quickly darts to the far side of the door, ducking into the deeper shadows there. As she passes the open doorway, she glimpses dozens of angry faces crowded outside, and before them a broad back clad only in a shirt, a pistol in one hand, a sword in the other. "'You're acting like primitives!' Theodore shouts. "'There is no bull-god. There is no devil. You're killing an innocent man for the perversions of a madwoman. "'Blood answers blood!' 
someone says, and many voices break out in chorus, making Ariane's hair stand on end. Blood answers blood! Blood answers blood! Listen to yourselves, my life for hers. To what end? Her unnatural offspring still lives. Not for long, a man says, and Ariane knows his voice, the shopkeeper. You killed the witch. Now we must appease her lover. If this child exists as you claim, the fire will take it. And this is well. Someone begins howling in the night like an animal to slaughter. And the chorus shouts in response. A body tumbles through the open doorway of the house, crashing against the boards to land in a heap on the floor. Ariane stares at her father's unmoving body, and then she starts walking backwards, hushing the boy who whimpers against her neck. "'You are murderers, all of you,' Theodore says. She can see his shadow in the doorway. "'I tried to help you.' "'On the contrary, citizen,' the shopkeeper replies. We're philosophers. An Englishman once said, That which brings happiness to the greatest number, that is the definition of good. He pauses, then shouts, Now! The rushing feet sound like a thunderclap. A mass of bodies strikes Theodore all at once, shoving him back into the wall, where he trips over her father, sword and pistol flailing. Before he can right himself, they slam the door shut dowsing the hallway in darkness. Ariane keeps stepping backwards, trying to keep her panicked breathing silent. She steps once too often and hits another wall. Only then does she realize she's on the wrong side. She doesn't know where these corridors lead. I can hear you, you little beast! There is the hiss of a sword being sheathed, a match sparks in the gloom. I know you're close. You won't escape me again. At the last she turns and runs, the boy snuffling in her ear as she hurries down the new passage, one hand held before her. She runs into another wall, her fingers jamming painfully, and feels on either side, trying to place herself in the house. There must be a way to get back to the front door. If she keeps turning? Ariane? There is a tremor in his voice. It is also closer than she thought. Ariane, is that you? We must stay together. There is something monstrous in here. I tried to kill it, but it was too fast. Ariane, stay where you are. Let me find you. At last his voice rises to a yell, tinged with fury. She turns and keeps moving, her hand waving wildly before her. Her foot catches on a thick root, and she falls to her knees just managing to keep herself from landing atop the boy. He screeches in her ear, and she presses his face to her neck. Please, she whispers, please be quiet. You must be quiet now. Ariane, Theodore yells. Ariane, don't go near it. Stay away from it. Another match sparks, then dies away. But she glimpses the light in the gloom, as if at the end of a very long hall. Didn't she just turn? Is he ahead of her now? She staggers to her feet, swinging the boy against her. From the curve of her neck comes a soft squeaking noise. The boy is trembling again, but she has no time to comfort him. 
Her hand slides along the rough wood, splinters catching in her skin. At last she feels the wall end in open space to her left. She turns, quickening her pace once more. A few steps down, she inhales and tastes smoke. Her heart leaps. Eagerly she presses forward, pushing against fresh vines that are tangling around them. Nearly there, she whispers into the boy's hair. We're nearly there. But as she speaks, she walks head first into smooth, solid wood. The boy yelps as his head bangs against the door, followed by her elbow and knees. The blows in the child's wells, echoing in the quiet. Ariane! The roar makes her jump nearly upon them, and full of anger now. Stay still, you idiot! We have to find a way out. Panicking, she feels the smooth wood, the boy nearly falling as she shifts him from one arm to the other. At last, she seizes a handle and turns, pushing as hard as she can, her mouth opening to call out, Don't hurt us! We mean no harm! But she steps not into the burning vineyard, but her mother's bedroom again. Her eyes well with tears of frustration as she shuts the door behind them. The room is warm and hazy with smoke. Looking around wildly, she tries to think, Where can we hide? How can we protect ourselves? And then she sees the smoke drifting towards the far corner of the room, towards the drawing of the silhouette, drifting into the drawing. Ariane shifts the boy from one hip to the other and moves towards it, her fingertips just brushing its center, soft and warm. She pushes harder, and her fingers slide in with a puckering sound, like a kiss. Outside the room, Theodore thrashes and curses as he makes his way through the vine-choked hall. Not a moment to lose. Ariane looks at the boy, searching for any sign of refusal or fear. But he meets her gaze and blinks once, a slow lowering of his bristly eyelids. She seizes the nearest grapevine and pulls it free from the wall. Gripping it firmly, she stretches a leg into the drawing, like stepping through the skin on hot milk. The door flies open. She just glimpses Theodore's enraged face and raised pistol as she goes completely into the wall and finds herself blinded by sunlight. Her feet slip on gravelly dirt, and she skids to her knees, holding both boy and vine tightly. A great weight spills over them as Theodore lunges through, stumbling over her hunched body and falling head first down a steep hillside. Halfway down, the pistol goes off, the shot reverberating around them, making the boy shriek in fright. Ariane raises her head and blinks and squints, separating white glare sky from gray-green blotches that congeal into a vast expanse of walls and paths that run to the horizon. They are crouched before a crevice in the rocky hillside, at the start of a lacework of switchbacks leading down to the largest maze she has ever seen. She looks and looks, and she cannot take it all in. She sees hedges taller than a house. She sees the facades of city streets with nothing behind them. She sees country lanes intersecting between fields that end a few feet from the road. She sees people, too. 
people walking and running, embracing and grappling, and everyone's faces are alight with a wild, mad joy, and their mouths and hands are stained crimson. At the base of the hill, Theodore rights himself and looks around, his one leg kinked unnaturally. Even from her vantage, Ariane can sense his bewilderment and fear. Then he looks up, and his face contorts once more with anger. "'Stupid cow!' he calls up to her. "'You nearly broke my neck!' At the sound of his voice, the people in the maze stop moving. A thousand blood-stained faces turn in his direction. "'No,' Ariane whispers. "'Ariane, please!' He spreads his hand wide, hopping on his one good leg. That child is an abomination. You must see that. Leave it and help me. The maze shifts behind him, rearranging itself so its paths converge upon an empty space like a city square. People file in, dragging with them what looks like a large frame atop a wagon. A fountain bursts into life, gushing red liquid, and the people crowd around, jostling to scoop it up in handsful, their faces ecstatic as they drink. Hide, Ariane says, but her throat is tight with fear. She tries again, straining her voice. Theodore, you must hide! He peers up at her, cupping his ear. Can he not hear them coming? She stands up, pressing the boy behind her. Hide, she calls, her voice echoing now. They're coming for you. Below her, the boy suddenly cries out, Mama! Ariane cannot see. She squints and strains, and then she sees her, climbing onto the wagon and swinging from the frame like a child. Her mother, their mother. Her naked body gleams red as she cavorts around the wagon, her hair coiling wildly about her face and her mouth hanging open in an endless cry, an unending scream of joy or anger. The boy lurches forward and Ariane catches him around his little belly, pulling him against her as he squirms and bleats. Not Mama, she whispers in his ear. You mustn't go to her, you mustn't. The crowd reaches the edge of the maze. Slowly, Theodore turns, throwing up his hands before the sea of faces. They flow around him, drawing him among them until he stands before the wagon. Her mother pulls up the blade, and Ariane wants to vomit. She wants to scream and vomit and run down the hillside and hit her and hit her, pommel her into the ground until she is as dead as the body in the bedroom. "'What have I done?' Theodore cries. "'Why me? Tell me what I have done.' Ariane's anger fills her. It makes her eyes well and her heart pound. It expands without end, enveloping the whole of the maze, until everything is happening at the rhythm of her rage. Theodore bellows, "'Why me?' In time with her rage, the crowd roars and hoots and howls in time. They drag Theodore onto the wagon and embrace and drink and pump their fists all in time. While around them the maze forms and reforms at intervals, as regular as her pounding heart. And then Theodore is held down, and the blade drops, and Ariane screams. 
Her cry echoes through the endless valley, coming back to her as a chorus of a hundred Ariannes screaming in terror and regret. The boy starts howling. The crowd turns and looks up at the hillside. Ariane is backpedaling even as she weeps. It will be her next. She's certain of it. She reaches for the boy, but he moves away, looking from her to the crowd and back again with half-lidded eyes. No, she gasps. Mama, he says, then makes a string of garbled noises, waving a chubby hand at the maze. Not Mama. It's not her. She catches his hand and he pulls back, digging his heels into the dirt, and something wrenches deep in her gut. Please, she says, please stay with me. The boy looks at her, and his eyes are as vast as the night sky. All the paths that brought her here. She can leave the boy and her mother both. Go back and try to create some kind of life for herself. Or she crouches down bringing his hand to her lips and kissing his fingers. I am Mama. Tugging him closer, she taps her chest with their joined hands. I am Mama now. He tilts his head, considering her, and she meets his gaze as best she can, tries to mutely express everything she needs him to understand. Always. Mama. Yes. Rocks tumble free below them. They both peer down and see the crowd filing onto the switchback, tripping over each other as they fight to be the first up the hill, their eyes bright against their red-stained faces. Ariane seizes the boy and follows the grapevine back to the crevice, only to gasp in dismay. How could they have come through something so narrow? But the crowd is upon them. They are moving now with goat-like sureness. Gritting her teeth, she shoves the boy forward, and he seems to slip between the rocks like they're slick with grease. Pulling on the grapevine, she wriggles after him. The space is so tight she panics and nearly falters. But strange hands stroke her leg, and she pulls and shoves and she is through, falling face first into the smoky, desolate ruins of the house. She looks behind her, but there is nothing but the remains of the wall the silhouette indistinguishable against the scorched wood. She touches it, and the blackened surface crumbles beneath her fingers. The whole of the bedroom is a mess of smoldering charred beams and heaps of ash. Her mother's body is ash and bone. And which one is her real mother, the body here or the madwoman in the maze who gleefully decapitated a man without cause? She quickly looks for the boy, but he is standing stock still in the center of the room, his snout pointed at the sky, staring open-mouthed at the great sprays of stars. Smoke clings to the scorched vines like fog. She takes the boy's hand and leads him into the vineyard and up the rise, pausing at the top to look back one last time. A wave of sorrow fills her, for Theodore for what might have been, but it quickly sours into bitter regret that she wasn't there to watch her father's monstrous work become visible at last, that she wasn't there to watch it all burn.
you have it, dear listeners, a truly inspired riff on the French Revolution and the ancient Greek myth of the Minotaur, two seemingly disparate topics that add up to a brilliant and unsettling piece of weird fantasy. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from you, our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes, Acast and other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. We depend on you to make this all possible, so please also consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can download the content and share it with whomever you like, but you can't change it and you really cannot sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will never escape the maze of legal entanglements. May your week be as sunny and funny as mine promises to be. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.